Welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chats, brought to you by Monster Oil. What is this? 21 year? Hey everybody, welcome to Brass Chats once again. Today we're speaking with a gentleman who is quite possibly the best trumpet player you haven't heard. He's played with some of the greatest big bands of all time, including Maynard Ferguson, Stan Kenton, and Frank Sinatra. And he is currently playing lead trumpet with the Bill Holman Big Band, which he's been doing since 1984. Carl, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Uh, let's talk about your early days. Uh, when you grew up, you spent your first five years of your life in Indianapolis, I believe. No, I was uh, on the road with my Uncle Bobby's band. Right. And your mother was a singer, my with, was the singer with Kenton, with, among other people. My mother was a singer, was so the first you, singer with Stan Kenton's band. So you grew up around music? I've, all my whole family, Perfect Pitch, and yeah, my Uncle Bobby had two hit records on the road, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Elks Parade and Sherwood's Forest, and my mother was singing with the band, and she, her name was Gail Sherwood, but she couldn't go by Sherwood when she was with Bob, her brother's band. So she used Gail Landis on the road, mm -hmm. and uh, I was on the road from zero to five uh, in the theaters and the wings at the, on the gigs and chasing the band around. Like, and I was always watching the band, listening to the band, and from the wings. And, and and then my mother got out of the music business when I was five years old to keep me out of it, because really? because my whole family was in music and she, you know, everybody was swept into the music business and so. It was such an insecure business, she wanted to get me out of the, the business. And she was right, actually. Mm -hmm. But what she really wanted to do was to uh, just let me decide to choose for myself which direction I wanted to go. But after being on the road for five years, the first five years of my life, I already had, you know, I was listening to the music every night, and I just, you know, had it in my head. And then and you went to Vegas, I believe? Oh, well, I moved to Los Angeles. Uh, we moved to Los Angeles and moved in with... Uh, my aunt Caroline, who was married the the young sax of jazz saxophone player with with my uncle Bobby's band, and his name was Dave Pell. Mm -hmm. And if you've heard of the Dave Pell Octet, he yep. has like 35 albums. It's pretty uh, famous uh, original West Coast jazz group. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we were living with Dave and Caroline when I was a, a five and you know six and seven and. And uh, when the first Octet album came out, uh, I was listening to the record, and I heard Don Fagerquist, mm -hmm. who was my, you know, my real inspiration. Of course, my uncle Bobby played great trumpet. In fact, if you look uh, up Bobby Sherwood, uh, I would I would suggest for you to get the album, uh, uh, the issued recordings. It's called Bobby Sherwood from forty-three to forty-two to forty-seven. It's called mm -hmm. the issued recordings. And his band, his band is on there, and he plays great trumpet. I mean, he was a guitar player, really, but uh, he learned to play trumpet, and he played funky like Clark Terry, all that stuff back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, I always thought, of course, he was my uncle, so I'm a little biased, but I always thought he played better than all the other jazz, famous jazz guys like, uh, you know, Bunny Berrigan and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, who's the guy from Davenport, uh, Bix, and Bix, all those yeah. guys. I mean, Bobby had this warm, beautiful, funky, musical way of playing, you know, but he was a guitar player and wrote all the arrangements and sang and mm -hmm. and uh, it was pretty well, he was a very talented guy. Who were your other influences at the time? Who else were you listening to? Well, I mean, when I, when I was young, we're back to where I was young, Don Fagerquist, I mean, was my, my, my uh, big inspiration. I just loved the way he played the flowing, lyrical, 
warmth of his solos, and uh, I he was the only guy that played trumpet with joy and 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 uh, beauty mm -hmm. in his jazz. You know, it was just happy. It was beautiful. You know, mm -hmm. if you listen, you hip to it. I mean, you hip to Fager. No, Quist, I don't know now. Look him up and listen to how he plays. He just plays. You know, he plays the trumpet like I wanted to play it, and mm -hmm. like I still want to play it. I mean, you listen to him now, and I still I still play. Fagerquist stuff for people when they come over and these are trumpet players, friends of mine, and mm -hmm. they, they go, whoa, you know, I mean, he's just, it's a little dated because all of his recordings are back in the 50s and 60s mm -hmm. and stuff, and he died when he was 47 years old. Oh, boy. Uh, from uh, drinking. Yeah. So, uh, we talked on the phone a little bit uh, before this, and you said some things that I'm having a hard time believing. You said that you never practiced. Uh, now, there's going to be a lot of kids watching this, and they're going to be really excited when they hear this, that they should never practice again. How did you get good without practicing? Well, I, was, I went to high school in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So um, when I grew up, uh, I was starting subbing in show bands. There were so many show bands and so much action, so much gigs, and uh, there was just a lot of, lot of musical opportunity in Las Vegas as far as show, show bands are concerned, which is show business. You know, mm -hmm. It's like not jazz or anything. But I mean, you learn. I learned how to uh, play under pressure and how to read, and and uh, it helped my, you know, development. Uh, you know, playing little show bands here and there. And uh, in Las Vegas, we played two shows a night, six nights a week. You talking about in high school? Well, no. This is after when I started working in. Well, what about in high school when you start when you learned how to play? Oh the well, trumpet. in high school, I'm just playing in band. You know. But you still weren't practicing. Uh, I have a hard time believing it. You must I, have You know, I mean, I was muttering around in <coughs> band and stuff, and I'd play. I was more playing. I'd go play places. I'd go try to play jazz, mm -hmm. you know. I wouldn't, like, sit home and go, ba 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 and reading out of a book. Mm -hmm. I would just, I would play in band where I learned, you know. That was my basic practice. And then after, at night or something, we'd go find clubs or get together with some other musical, you know, kids in school and stuff, and we'd get together and play, and we would play mm -hmm. instead of practice. Uh, but later, when I was working the shows, that's the basic reason that I say that I never practiced, because I lived in Las Vegas for 30 yeah. years, and uh, I did a lot of uh, show bands there, and it was two shows a night, six nights a week. So. And we're bashing our chops every night. We go in at yeah. eight o'clock, two hour show, uh -huh. and then we get off until midnight. Then we come back at midnight and do it again. Play the show again. By the time you get through, your chops are pretty beat up. Even though we had chops because we were playing every night. Yeah. But we couldn't practice during the day. You know, uh, we needed to rest. So that whole habit uh, got me out of being a practicer. But I played a lot. Yeah. When I was on the road, uh, I'd play the gig. I was on the road with Cy Zentner's band, uh, with Stan's band, and mm -hmm. different bands. And I'd always get, th we'd get through the gig. The bus would come back to the hotel. Everybody would go to their room. I would go to the, the desk and order a cab. I'd get a cab driver. I'd go to a jazz club mm -hmm. and find a place. And guys would say, aren't you tired? You know, <laughs> yeah, I was tired. I'm tired, but I wanted to play. So yeah. that was my practice. I'd go to clubs and just force myself to play. So I was always playing. And then when I lived in Las Vegas, we played the shows six nights a week, two shows a night. We'd get through at two in the morning. Then we'd go to the clubs and play in wow. Vegas because it was a 24-hour town. And we'd play it till six in the morning. And, we'd, and then I had drums, piano, and, and I had a bass. At, well, I don't have my bass anymore, but I had a bass. And I had bass, drums, and piano in my front room. 
So at the end of the show, uh, we'd get through at 2 in the morning if there wasn't any clubs happening in Vegas, and it's a showbiz town, and sometimes the jazz scene was a little weak. Mm -hmm. uh, we'd go to my house and play in my front room, and mm -hmm. we played about 6 and 7 in the morning. And uh, I remember Sam Noto was in town, Rosalina, Frank Rosalino, sure. and Carl Fontana, and we'd be playing at my house till 6 in the morning. I mean, I mean Sam Noto, you know, he, he'd get, get juice, he'd get, uh, you know, he'd be drinking a little bit, get out of get out of it, you know, and he plays like, we're in my front room, like, just full out, you know, it's like, oh my God, great. it's like a dream come true. You sure. Know? I mean, oh, wow. but I mean, and then what am I going to do, practice the next day? I don't think so. I need to sleep and, and rest my chops because I got to play the show that night. Yeah. Uh, right out of high school, you had an opportunity to play with Stan Kenton, but they didn't have a trumpet opening. So you had to play in the mellophonium section. What? is a mellophonium. Uh, Stan, uh, in the 58, in 1958, Stan Kenton uh, uh, did an album, what was it called, Back to Balboa, uh -huh. and uh, he used two French horns uh -huh. in that, on that album. And what he's trying to do is, you know, he's got that rich, that rich brass section, five trumpets, five trombones, and five saxes, and uh, what he wanted to do was get the richness of the French horn sound in that brass section. So he used two, tr two French horns. And the album came out, and it was swinging, you know, the Back to Balboa album. Mm -hmm. and, but t two French horns couldn't cut it with five trump against five trumpets and five trombones and five saxes. Mm -hmm. so, that, so he went away from that theory. So, and then in 61 or 60 or whenever he did this, he uh, decided that he still wanted the richness of the... French horn sound in the in the in the brass section, but he couldn't find French horn players that could swing. Mm -hmm. So he invented the mellophonium, which a friend of mine gave me this for my, one of my birthdays. Yeah, and here it is. It's like this is a mellophonium. It's got it's got uh, spider webs on it, which shows you how much I respect I have for it. Would you mind playing a couple notes? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, oh man, that's there's crazy. a mellophonium, and that's what Stan used. On, on the thing, and, and that's what you played for a year straight. I played that for about a year and a half on Stan's band. What was, was the vibe in that band at the time? Well, I mean, it was a bunch of older guys. I was just a young kid, you know. I was, you know. Uh, were they nice to you? Were they cool? Yeah, they, they were, were nice to me, but they were a little distant, you know. Oh, until okay. Charlie Mariano came out on the band. Now, Charlie Mariano was a beautiful, a beautiful cat, it's an out saxophone player, and he was on the '55 band. Mm -hmm. uh, he did the original Stella by Starlight, mm -hmm. uh, Bill Holman's classic arrangement. Yeah, and he came out. Uh, for a tour uh, on tenor mm -hmm. with when I was on the band. And then he'd hang out with me. He'd call me and he'd, he'd hang with me. And he'd talk to me about different ways of, uh, I mean, he was a real theory, uh, you know, music theory guy, you know. And I'd sit in the back of the bus with him and he'd talk to me. And he was talking to me about chromatic, the chromatic approach to arranging and stuff. And it was way over my head. And I was mm -hmm. just sitting there grinning and nodding and, Hoping that he thought that I knew what he was talking about, you know, <laughs> and but the 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 word chromatic kept in my head. Yeah. And uh, so I was playing mellophonium on the band, but I would go up to the little convention halls of the hotels with my trumpet. I had my trumpet with me on the road when I was with Stan's band, and I'd go play jam sessions at night mm -hmm. on trumpet. I'd never take the mellophonium. Right. What am I going to do with that? And so uh, I'd practice. I did do a little practicing. 
Uh, ah, the truth comes out. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, but but what I was practicing was what Charlie was saying. Charlie Mariano was talking to me about chromatics, so I started working on chromatic scales instead of regular scales. Yeah, and I was going little patterns, and I just sit up there and I go. Different patterns of yeah. just making them up as you go, but it's all chromatic, so you just move and go anywhere, do anything. And uh, and then I go down, and what happens was I was working on it, and I'd, I'd work on them for some reason. I just had this chromatic thing going, you know, mm -hmm. and I did it for quite a while. And what it did, I thought, was, was make my fingers more flexible uh, than I would have if I hadn't practiced the chromatic scales. Yeah. Because uh, the regular scales are like whole tone, whole tone, half tone, whole tone, and whole tone, half tone, or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, chromatic scales, you're getting your fingers on every note. Uh huh. So, but you're getting that third and second, you know, the second and third finger going real yeah, good, yeah. which is kind of a, uh, you know, little hang up in the muscle thing here, you know. Right. And so I was getting pretty soon. My fingers were flexible. You know, like I could play cleaner and faster and you know you know and I thought I kind of attribute it to the to the work I did on chromatic scales so and it opened up I your do, mind it opened up do, your improvising when I do clinics and and stuff like that or talk to students I I stress that to them very strongly uh, to to put at least uh, you know if they were if they practice an hour to put at least 10 minutes in on just chromatic scales and make up their own patterns and it frees your fingers up I I believe it instead of like the regular scales. Because I didn't practice the regular scales that much. I was into the chromatics. And then when I started playing regular scales later, the regular scales flew pretty good easily because my fingers were flexible with the chromatics. I mean, I, I, I could be wrong, but I mean, that's what I think. And that opened up your improvising when you were able to play these licks that you... Well, you know, when you're improvising, you know, it's like, it's like uh, composing on the fly is what it is. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Um, when you're improvising is we're all we're all at the mercy of our licks. We all have our licks. Freddie Hubbard had his licks. You know, Clifford Brown had his licks. Everybody, all the great players have their licks yeah. that, they, that they rely on. So what I call my licks is uh, stepping stones, which is like you use a lick to, to step to maybe get out in the water and start floating around and getting some new things going mm -hmm. uh, and some different ideas that you haven't come up with. Maybe someone else has come up with them, but you don't know that yet until someone comes up to you and says, I heard that before, so-and-so -and -so played it, you know. Yeah. Said, Oops. <laughs> well, let's talk about improvising for a second. Let's get into this. Um, I was wondering, I, w I wanted to ask you if you were able to imitate yourself at an earlier age. So, for example, if you could take us through like a progression of what you used to solo like and some of the things you learned on the trumpet and some of your licks and so forth. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, you remember. <laughs> I don't remember, no. Um, I mean, when I first started playing, I mean, I mean, I don't know who's going to be listening to this, but I mean, the first time, well, first, you know, I mean, I do this, this jazz camp up there and we get these kids going and all they do is play B-flat blues and, right. and, they, and, and uh, uh, they're searching for a theme, you know, in B flat and they're they're the key of C for trumpet, which is our home key, you know, mm -hmm. B flat. So when I started playing, I mean this is just you know, I found that uh that uh E flat, you know, in the B flat blues, you know, it was like I hit that day day, I hit that that's the blue note, the first blue note that you can yeah. on on the, in the blues. And so I found that and I'm saying, "Wow, 
you know, that was a big discovery for me. Of course, I'm like 12 years old. I'm 13 years, you know, I'm, you know. <laughs> so, so, uh, and I found that, and I just started messing around with that E flat and the the root, and then I found the 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 A, which is the 13, that fit. Yeah. And then the B flat is the seventh, which that fit. I'm saying I'm finding notes that fit because I didn't study music. I just heard it Yeah. because I was raised with the music. So I had all the good stuff in my head. I just had to get it out through the horn somehow. And so I just slowly started doing it. And I, jazz was kind of a thing that I, that I embraced early in my life. And I found that blue note, which was the... That's what high school kids do, is just stay on that side. So, so. Yeah. Then I found the flat five, which is the next blue note. You know, and I went, and that, what a discovery that was. You know, I, was I remember like, Dizzy's autobiography, he devoted an entire chapter, I believe, to the flatted fifth. He said he would play <laughs> entire choruses on one note. He was so entranced by the note. It, yeah, you know, it's a great note. So, but, but even in solos, you know, it goes along with the, with the, with the flat third, which is the first blue note. And the, I call the flat fifth the second blue note. Yeah. And then it starts coming together. Like pretty soon, you got more notes to work with, and right. And uh, that's the way I kind of talk to young kids that are just starting out uh, improvising. Is is when they play that B flat seven, which is C seven for us. Yeah. Uh, you find the notes. You have all these notes to work with. You got the root. You got the nine. You got the third. You got the flat third. You got the flat five. You got the five, and you have the if you want to mess with the plus five, that's pretty advanced. That's more Woody Shaw. Yeah. You know, but you got the sixth, which is the A, and the B flat, which is the seventh. And, yeah. and you don't want to mess with the major seven in the blues because there is no major seven in the blues. So there's only about three notes that you stay away from, mm -hmm. and all the other notes work. So you can just fly around all the workable notes and find things that, that uh, please your ear because your ear is different. My all, we have all different ears. Can you give an example of a blues chorus? Um, that, uh, that you would hope that a high school student would be able to play. So, for example, it wouldn't be anything, no Woody Shaw stuff or complicated stuff, but something that you would hope they would be able to play with the notes that, you know, do you understand what I'm trying to get at? Well, um, I mean, I can play something simple, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, I just did, like, I'm just starting out, you know. So but that's probably a little more advanced than, I mean, yeah, I, I got more advanced, I can't, but I can't, uh, it started uh, off real blues scaly, and then you went into the chromatic thing, which we talked about earlier. I did a chromatic earlier, line, yeah. And then you started to go into Carl Saunders mode <laughs> a yeah, little bit. Yeah. I think you lost some of the students. On yeah, some I, of that uh, one, but, you know, I can't help myself, but be well, myself. Well, of course. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So, uh, so you like to start kids off with the blues scale notes, the real blue notes. And then how do you make that transition? Well, you play just chromatic scale stuff, but how do you make the transition into learning more complicated chord changes? When you play more of a bird blues or something like that, well, how does a student go about you know, navigating I those mean, things? I mean, not every, not every music student or trumpet student is going to be a jazz soloist. Well, what about See, the ones who do want to be? The ones that do want to be are the rare people that are going to have to uh, apply themselves to different types of things. Right. In other words, less chop, high note 
uh, strong stuff, but bigger mouthpieces, bigger sounds, more flexibility, yeah. and, and uh, more ability to get around the horn clean and mean, yeah. hopefully. You know, uh, the lead guys, they got the small mouthpieces and they're like, and they got the edgy sound and they, they can play all night without hurting themselves and they can play high all night, but they don't have the, they, they can't play a warm ballad in the lower register and they can't, uh, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I don't think that they can uh, get off of the, 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 the compression of the mouthpieces with the pea shooters. They can't get off of those short notes in the high register. Yeah. They're like hanging over and doing all that what I call unmusical uh, lead playing. In other words, when they go, and I mean, ba da ba do ba do beep. Hit a little soft. If you can play a high note, yeah. play it soft. If you can, can't play a short, I mean, not soft. I mean, if you can play a short high note, then you're playing. That's right, what right. I think. Okay. You know? But if you listen to most lead players, they're blowing so much air that they can't stop. And, and that's another thing with one of my trumpet axioms is use the least amount of air to get the job done to its fullest. Okay. Which is like the airstream is a certain miles per hour. Yep. Your air is coming out of there at a certain miles per hour. How, what is it, 55 miles an hour, 45 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour? I don't know. I would like to measure it. But whatever it is, you want to find that optimum or the proper miles per hour for you, right. which is like it's like going to have your glasses set. Like everyone's got a different, yeah, a different thing. You know, it's a different thing with the miles per hour that works for you with trumpet. Mm -hmm. Now you need a certain miles per hour to get a sound, of course. So what I think is like a, my observation of lead players uh, that I that I observe, everyone's playing too. They're blowing too hard. Yeah. They're, playing, they're blowing too much air. They're overblowing because they want to make sure that everything's done. <laughs> you know, they want the support. Yep. You go to a trumpet teacher, they're saying to the, they're saying to the students, what do they say? More support, more diaphragm, more hump. It's, yeah, all, yeah, yeah. it's all strength. Instead of just firm it up and let, let it flow and be cool. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And like cut back on that miles per hour of your airstream. And so... When, when trumpet players run into problems, their teachers usually say, more air, more so, in other words, blow through the problem, and then it'll open up. And sometimes that cures it, but now you've got yourself blowing harder, and it's, I don't think you should do that, but everyone does it. See? Yeah. No one agrees with me. And a lot of people agree with you. I know well, I don't see it. I, I, you know, I don't see it. You know, I'd like to see it. Yeah. But what, what, I'd, like to, what I'd like to do is, what I'd like to do is, I back off the airstream until I find that right miles per hour mm -hmm. where things are working. It's loud enough. I don't have to overblow. Mm -hmm. And well, when I uh, I would say lead players should make their base of operations mezzo forte. So when you sit in a section, uh, I mean when I sit in a section, uh, I go to a gig or something, and I'm not playing lead. I'm playing third or second or something, and the lead player. I would say more than 95% of the time, the lead player is always overblowing. Yeah. He's always playing too loud. And, and uh, if now let's say I, we go to a gig and I'm playing lead, I always start at mezzo forte. Huh. I establish mezzo forte in the section to start out the base of operations. Yeah. 
and then we're going. We got trumpets in our hands here. We don't yeah, have. So we're we're in a riser. We're over the. We're. we're we, we don't need to blast everything. So yeah. I told the kids, I said, don't ever let the band leader ask for less. Ah, nice. Always have him ask for more. So, but he usually don't because you're sitting there. Not you know everyone's going bad at instead of you have more control and you're still loud enough you're still fine and it can back lose. off and then you don't have to work that hard you you'll yeah. last longer when someone wants to ask for more you'll have enough to give them and it can lose it's some swing too it all works better that way yeah they can but lose it, some of the swing nobody too nobody does it I don't know anybody that does it. Yeah, interesting. I do it. I try to do it. I even get swept up in being loud sometimes. You know, it's easy to be swept up because if the amps are hitting you and like, uh, you know, some people are wearing earplugs. I'm with some people. I, a musician that wears earplugs, uh, he might as well just start selling insurance. That's all I have to say about a musician that wears earplugs. Yeah. Because he's supposed to hear what he's doing. When I put an earplug in, I can't, I can't play. I mean, I, I don't, I can't concentrate on what I'm playing because I'm hearing. <laughs> right, right. I mean, what are we doing? <laughs> you know. So, and 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 the reason that musicians are wearing earplugs is because they're playing too loud. Yeah. You work. You do a number of clinics and you work with young people quite a bit. Um, how does that work? What kind of routine do you work with them on? What kind of things do you do with them at these clinics? Well, I mean, I do a lot of things. If they're trumpet players, you know, I talk about the least amount of air to do the job to its fullest to try mm -hmm. to get them to back off their airstream, of course, which is if I'm just talking to trumpet players, uh, which is, you know, and then I get. But when I'm talking to just regular students, like of all, all instruments, and they're all jazz students, uh, I usually, you know, since they're jazz students, they want to learn how to blow. Mm -hmm. So my, my one thing, I always thought, for years that practicing jazz was sacrilegious. I thought like my friend would, like my friends were like working out Freddie Hubbard licks and then they go play them. You know what I mean? Practicing jazz. Jazz is supposed to be off the top of your head. You're supposed to be creating something. You're not supposed to practice something that you create. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to practice your fundamentals on your instrument uh, and then create something new, hopefully out of your head, you know. But practicing jazz is is not you know you dig where I'm going with that yeah so uh, but recently I'm starting to kind of change my viewpoint on it a little bit and I found a way of practicing jazz without actually being mechanical mm -hmm. like I think a way I found a way of practicing jazz in a natural way which is better I think than mechanics because the mechanics of jazz is is on the instrument the mechanics is in the instrument not in the jazz not mm -hmm. in the improv the improv is free of once you learn how to do you once you get proficient on your instrument then you're able to play you know what i mean uh so what i've just what i kind of put together was a thing called a jazzercise which is like practicing jazz now how and so and what i did was I've got these series of chord changes, and it starts out on C minor seven. Mm -hmm. So it's now in jazz, when you're looking at jazz solos, and uh, uh, let's say you're playing in a band, and all of a sudden you got a solo. What are you going to see? You're going to see a set of, of chord changes, right? Now, if you look at those chord changes, more than likely you're going to see minor sevens to sevens to major sevens. Just minor sevens, sevens, and major sevens. Occasionally right. you run into an augmented chord, 
and then you, but basically it's minor sevens, sevens, and major sevens. Just two fives, yeah. That's about it. I mean, basically. So, of course, the there's the alterations, minor seven, five, five, which is a whole new, you know, triad that you can throw in there. Mm-hmm. Or minor seven plus five, uh, flat nine, blah, blah, There's all sorts of alterations to the chord. But basically it's minor sevens to sevens, major sevens. Uh, and then you get into the exotic chords, which is minor, major sevens. Uh, and the the exotic alterations plus fives and the triads and then the half you know like the B triad over C and wild things like that you know yeah. you know but basically when you're learning jazz you want the, the seven so what I've done is like I put this little thing called the jazzercise which is C minor seven to F seven like one one bar of C minor seven mm-hmm. then one bar of F7. Mm-hmm. Then the next bar, you take that F7 and you minor that. Oh. And you make that F minor 7 to B flat 7. Uh-huh. Then the next bar, you take that B flat 7 that you just resolved and you minor that. And then it's B flat minor 7 to E flat 7. Right. Then you take the E flat 7 and minor that and you make the E flat 7, yeah. E flat minor 7 to A flat 7, A flat minor to D flat all 7, set, D flat all the way. And then finally you get back around to the C7 again. So it's like a kind of a tune without end. But what it is, is like lets you go through these courses. And I printed out the, the changes for people to look at, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can, play, I can play them a little bit for you to just give you an idea in your head what they sound like, because it sounds like a tune. Mm-hmm. But it's like a continuation of the chord changes moving around. And what you do is like you, you every time you practice the jazzercise, it's always different. That's why it's natural and less and, and not m- mechanical. Oh. Because in a, in, if you're looking at a at a, at a uh, exercise, you're playing the same notes every time. And then the next day you look at it, and it's still still there. But with the jazzercise, when you look at it the next day, you're playing something different. Yeah. So you're always playing something different on the chord changes. So I'm going to try to play through the jazzercise for you, sure. uh, just to give you an idea uh, of, of hearing it. So I'll just start out on C minor seven, which is our D minor seven, and, I, and okay. I'll go to G seven, and then I'll minor minor that and go up in. And I and I don't know what I'm going to play, sure. but I mean I'm just playing the chord changes. But you can hear the chord changes, you know. <laughs> And I went through it all the way. But you see how it works through? It's just like a song, and it's kind of fun in a way, you know. And it's a melodic set of changes. You can do it at different tempos too. Different tempos, and uh, and but you're always playing something different. Yeah. So you just go minor seven to seven. Take that seven, minor it, and and go up. And you can write it out. I mean, I've written it out. I've you know I've given it to the sheet to the students, you know. Mm-hmm. But you can do it in your head because. Uh, and then and when you get the sheet out, you can practice with friends, you know, just play the jazzercise. And it's a great way to get through minor sevens to sevens. And that's what the basis of jazz is, yeah. is minor sevens. And then, that, and then I have jazzercise two, actually jazzercise, yeah, jazzercise two, A and B, which is like 
C minor seven to F seven to B flat major seven. Oh, okay. It resolves. And then you take the B flat major seven and then minor that. But when you do That's that process, it only goes through six keys. Then you have to take it oh, down. Oh, right, because it doesn't go chromatic, yeah. And so it doesn't, so then you have to take, uh, I call it jazzercise 2B, A and B, yep. where you have to take it a half a step up or down. Sure, yeah, yeah. And then you get the rest of the six. Right, right, that makes sense, yeah. So you do that. So that sounds like, you know. It's like, so it's it resolves to the major chord, which right. is like, you know, I didn't use the major chord in the first jazzercise. But the first jazzercise is so important, I think, because there's so many. I mean, you look at every, like I said, you look at every, uh, if you're in a band and you see a solo, uh, you see, what do you see? You see C minor 7 to what? Usually goes to F major, uh, F7. Yeah. And then where's the F7 usually go to? To B flat major. Flat, yeah. In other words, things are like the tendency. Of course, there's little different things, and some guys found a far out thing, and you're gonna f run into some far out stuff. But, mm -hmm. but basically, the jazzercise works real well. Hmm. What's the most fun you've ever had in a bandstand? Well, I don't know about the most fun, but there was a funny one. I mean, I think it's funny. Uh, we were playing with Buddy Rich's band, and uh, uh, on basically blues, I think is the name of the tune. Uh, I, I was I used to play this high A flat on the end. It was in a, it was in the section part. It was just one of the one of the notes in the section. It wasn't the lead lead yeah. part. I think the lead part was the high E, and I had a G sharp down it. And I used to play it up an octave. And uh, Bobby Shue was playing lead, and I'm playing the jazz chair. And uh, um, so we'd play it, and I played this a high A flat. And Buddy held it out a real long time. And Next thing I knew, I woke up in Bobby's arms. <laughs> what happened? I fainted. I blacked out. Oh, my God. And I was falling off the bandstand. And he caught me. And he was holding me, right? And I wake up, and I'm going, get the fuck out of here. Oh, my God. I've never completely, I've gotten blacked out where I almost fell, but I've never completely oh, fallen yeah. before. Uh, what? Okay, it's time for the monster round. You got an attitude, man. You <laughs> Gonna have to handle that before you get. Out I of don't service. have an attitude. You, Stop talking to me back, with that tone of voice. When you get back out into the, you know, you know, the regular folks area, you know, without uniforms. So much gold here. It's so a guy head. Oh, monster! Round. This is time for the monster round. Are you ready? Uh, is it a surprise? The monster round is no longer a surprise. You just, I just told you about it, so it's not a surprise anymore. You're, you're fully aware of it. The monster round is where we ask you a series of questions that you give rapid fire answers to. Don't oh. think too much, but but if you think a little too much, yeah, you see, you we're not going to get I'm mad not at good you. Good at that. So we'll ask you questions. They're short answer questions. Okay. And um, can we yeah. practice first, or we have to do it yeah, on the? Let's practice first. Um, play the lowest note you can. Staccato pianissimo. I mean, play it. Yeah. The lowest note? Well, the lowest No note. warm up notes. Lowest staccato pianissimo. Okay. <laughs> that was the practice. Now, see, that would be too many notes. Short answers. Well, see, I can't do that. I'm not, you know, it's like I'm not a legitimate guy. I'm just a fuzzy, like, fuzzer. <laughs> okay, so you're ready for the that's monster? A bad, that's, a bad, that's a bad opening. It's not with a joke. That's not the monster round. Oh, okay. So this is well, he doesn't have to do with He wanted a sample question. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that. <laughs> we might have you play some. We might not. <laughs> sample questions. So he's got the fucking. Okay. So here's the real monster. Are you ready for okay. it? Okay. Favorite album of all time. 
And I have to. T why can I have to? T why do I have to tell you like right away? Why can't you I? can take your time? It doesn't have to be. <laughs> as soon as you think of it, just you know. <laughs> you're asking me. I told you I have no favorites. Remember? You know, you're going to ask me what my favorite is. I Pick told you I don't have one any of favorites. your top. One, name one of your top ten albums of all time. Explosion, Terry Gibbs. Ooh. Which is no longer Explosion anymore. It's like they've re re. They've re-released it under another name, but it was the Terry Gibbs Dream Band with the Al Parcino playing lead back in the 60s. Where would you live if you were a billionaire? If I was a billionaire? Uh, I would have to ch hire consultants to find out where I wanted to live and, <laughs> and where the hippest spot to live because I'm not researching that. I'd rather have someone else research that for me since I could afford anybody, to, the best researchers <laughs> to research that question for me, especially being a billionaire. A and point. if I was a billionaire, I would have probably be interviewing you, not you wouldn't be interviewing me. That's a good me. point. That was a, that was a horrible question. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, dorky question. Uh, just uh, so you can tell the viewers, what equipment do you play? I've been playing a, a Burbank binge uh, that I bought used in 1968. Um, and mouthpiece? I've been playing a... Uh, Bach 10.5C, uh, not Mount Vernon and not, not uh, uh, New York. Just, oh. just a regular Mount Vernon. Okay. Uh, not a Mount Vernon, I mean just a regular Bach 10.5C, okay. okay. which is a lot different from the, ten, from the Mount Vernons yeah. and the uh, New Yorks. The Mount Vernon and the New Yorks are smaller and have kind of a, a dippy, roundy rim, where the, just the 10.5C Bach without Mount Vernon and without New York, have a flat rim, and it's like a wider, it's about a 5C, really. And that's what I've been playing on for all my jazz uh, stuff. And then I've been going back and forth with different pea shooters uh, playing lead. Okay. What was one of your, uh, what was one of the best uh, Stan Kenton arrangements that you played? Um, uh, well, you know, Stomp at the Savoy and, uh, and uh, Malaguena and, um, you know, the Bill Holman stuff. You know, it's was my favorite. What's the best thing you've ever cooked? Uh, marinara sauce. <laughs> Do you have any hidden talents? Yes, and we're going to keep them that way. <laughs> <laughs> What's the worst car you've ever owned? The worst car i ever owned? Mm -hmm. Worst car? I'm not a mechanic. I can't evaluate that. <laughs> <laughs> this is going great. Favorite sports team? The Raiders. Raiders. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, lo I, I love when they lose, you know, because they've been losing for 10 years, but I'm still hanging with them. Someday they'll come back, and when they come back, I'm going to be there. Did you ever it's get just shot? just like the styles of, of bow ties. <laughs> just hang out I, until it comes back I, in style. I like got this funky old Frank Sinatra bow tie. You're just got, waiting. And the other guys have got the, the hip little thing with the collar going, but then the little skin with one of the and they're all the way up on the top things. And, and then when the chain, when the style changes, they go throw that away and they get this one and they get that one. I still got this old funky, old big Frank Sinatra, big bow tie, and people looking at me. And I says, when this comes back into style, you guys are gonna be the fools. You know. All right, go ahead. Could you play for me the lick you've played more than any other that when people hear it, they're like, oh, that's Carl Saunders? Uh, wow. Jeez, I, I don't know. I, I can play and you can pick one out. Sure. Let's do it.
I don't know. Did you hear of any in there? I'll, I'll pick a couple out, yeah. So if you can do it a couple more times. Try this one. <laughs> and they're just like mumbling around. Who was the most demanding band leader you ever played for? Benny Goodman was horrible to us. He, he treated us like, I mean, I don't want to use bad words on this. I don't want to use profanity on this uh, tape, but I would use profanity describing, wow. <laughs> describing Benny Goodman. Wow. He was really a, a treated us treated with no respect. He wow. treated the band with no respect. And I, I kind of like, you know, I mean, the king of swing. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and the other guy that really surprised me about being a drag was uh, Jerry Mulligan. He showed us no respect. He really? was really a drag. I mean, I was really, because I kind of respected him sure. musically, you know. I mean, Benny Goodman, you know, was, you know but. <laughs> He's pretty good, too. <laughs> well, Benny Goodman was old style, like, you know, the, oh, okay. you know sure, like sure. more like, uh, you know, a swing. Just a different style. Old style yeah, yeah, swing. Yeah. But uh, Jerry Mulligan was more modernistic of jazz. Right. I wrote nice things that I liked. And, yeah. I, you know, I kind of had an affinity for him till I played with his band. You know, I traveled with his band for a couple of, he came out on the West Coast, put a band together out here in the West Coast, and we did some gigs in San Francisco and did some traveling with the West Coast band with Jerry Mulligan. And it was horrible. I was just glad to get out of there. He was just wow. like, he treated everybody badly. And like, you know, you don't feel like playing for somebody like that. You yeah. know, after like at rehearsals, he's like raining on everybody and treating everybody with disrespect and, and impatient yeah. with people and, and huh. stuff. And like, for now we get to the gig, you know, I don't like him anymore. Yeah. You know, I don't, you know, I don't feel spiritually Sure. Uh, outgoing for him, you know, to play yeah. for him, you know, like so those are the two guys that I kind of, okay. which is kind of a surprise, really, you know, to, f to find that out. I mean, what's your uh, what's your best celebrity impersonation? Jimmy Stewart. Walla aya, walla ah. That's all. <laughs> That's the whole impersonation. <laughs> oh, or uh, Ronald Reagan. Oh, let's hear that one. Well, That's the whole impersonation. <laughs> well, Nancy. <laughs> oh man! What's the uh, what's the most common mistake you see young trumpet players making? Uh, wanting to play high, loud, and fast. Best movie released before nineteen eighty. Uh, on the beach. What will your memoir be called? Who gives a shit? <laughs> Carl Saunders, thank you so much for sitting down with us. I really appreciate it. Very nice meeting you. Thank you.